What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Spring of Life. Giving my best each day is a demanding task that requires good health, and I try to stay on top of it as much as possible, but some days I could just use something extra. And so I've been taking daily energy from Spring of Life. Daily Energy is one of the most complete nutritional supplements I've seen. It has over 70 natural ingredients that target 11 key areas of health, and it's much more than just a greens product or a health drink. We've worked out a deal with Daily Energy so that listeners like yourself can get 30% off right now. Go to dailyenergy.com smart for this special offer. Again, that's dailyenergy.com smart and save 30% on Daily Energy. It's the simplest life hack you can do for your health this year. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast 2017. Happy New Year. Hope it was fun, safe, fun, obviously. It's going to be a great new year. Do you feel that one? Do you feel it in your bones? Because you need to. This is the time. If you don't feel it now, well, then what are you setting yourself up for? And perhaps that is why. This is such an amazing episode for this time of year. If you want to make change in your life, if you want to move things in the right direction, it starts with, we all know this, the most powerful tool we own, not your computers, your brain. How do we change that? Well, it has to do with mindset, right? And look, I'm the first to admit, I study this stuff. I teach this stuff. I coach on this and I have setbacks. Everybody has setbacks. Everybody has their issues. But if we can keep learning, practicing, trying things, that's how we get better. And I'm going to quote Tony Robbins here, somebody that I truly admire and love. 
And my wife, well, she's hilarious. That's why I love her. Yin to my yang. She's like, how can you listen to that guy? But anyways, I love Tony Robbins. He says people overestimate what they can do in a day, but underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I'd like to change that to underestimate what they can do in a year because it's the beginning of the year. So to start us off in the right direction, we are talking mindset. We're talking about turning losses into wins or failures into lessons, if you will, depending on how you want to look at it. This week on the show, we have Sam Weinman. And Sam is the author of the brand new book, came out December 20th, Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. But that's not all we cover in this episode. It's kind of a two-parter, much like many of our episodes are. The first half, or just less than half, we talk about Sam's background. So he has covered sports. He's been a sports writer for a lot of his life. And he is now and has been the Golf Digest digital editor. So although we use the guise of golf, something I'm extremely passionate about, in the beginning part of this interview, what we're talking about is, first of all, what's it like to write a book, especially your first book, even though you've been a writer your whole life? And then what's it like to run one of the most popular sports websites on the planet? We talk about things like creating those headlines that hook people and is that cheesy or cheating or pandering or whatever. We talk about what content creation is like now and where it may be going. And then we transition into his book. And as you can tell by the title, Win at Losing, it's really about bouncing back from failure. You know, in life, we all experience different types of loss. And I think it's human nature. The first place we want to go is, first of all, I don't like that feeling. And second of all, what did I do to lose? And that's fair. That's necessary, in my opinion. But Sam has gone out. He's talked to some of the best losers in the world. And by losers, you know, oftentimes it's people like Greg Norman, okay? Perhaps one of the best golfers of all time who blew a lead on Sunday in the Masters and never won one of the biggest tournaments there is in golf. Or Michael Dukakis, who came so close to the presidency and lost. Or small business owners, Olympic athletes, all of these people to see, you know, first of all, how real is that feeling of loss? Of course it's real. It doesn't just mean that Olympic athletes don't feel it. How can you learn from it? And even more so, we're not saying that loss is good. Personally, for me, that's a pet peeve when people say, yeah, no, I like failing. I, li like, I don't like it, but there can be a silver lining, and a lot of that comes down to how you look at it. So we're going to get into just a great episode to kick off the year here with Sam and his book, Win at Losing. Again, we are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We would love for you to sign up for our newsletter. Go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner. We send you snippets from episodes, best things we've heard, upcoming events. And at first, you'll get kind of a series of introductory emails. But after that, it's maybe monthly at best. So we're, we're not clogging your inbox. Smartpeoplepodcast.com. That's us. Reach out. Hope to hear from you. And here it is, our episode with Sam Weinman. Enjoy. Well, Sam, I know your book drops today, so thanks for taking time out of what I can imagine is an insane schedule to join us on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a, it's a fun kind of insane. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and speaking of which, uh, this is your first book, and we mentioned it in the intro, but the book is Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. 
And I just want to learn a little bit about from kind of a newcomer to the book writing industry <laughs> and then writing kind of a book that's, you know, it's getting out there. It's you got a lot of great coverage on it and things like that. What's it like? It's um, uh, again, not having a frame of reference. It's been fun. I mean, obviously, um, you know, book publishing, I guess you could break it into three phases. One is uh, the proposal trying to sell a book phase, which was fun but nerve-wracking because i'm a complete unknown entity or mostly unknown entity mm -hmm. uh then there's the kind of quiet uh writing and um reporting phase which was which was fun um you know in the sense that i knew i you know i sold the book i had a contract i talked to all kinds of interesting people i saw ideas come together obviously you know taxing from a, you know a professional standpoint because i had a date i have a day job and i have a family and i had to kind of balance all those things but i enjoyed it it was it was fun and then there's this third phase which is the promotion and publicity which is which is fun it's interesting like it's a lot of chess beating which i right. don't think i want to be good at because i just feel like it's um counterintuitive especially since so, so much of my book is about the importance of humility and here i am you know shouting from the rooftops how great this book is so it's an interesting um dynamic but all three have been fun and really educational yeah well regarding the chess beating i'll i'll be honest with you here you know we've interviewed now 250 plus most of them mm -hmm. authors and i find that most actually uh, the, the majority, I won't say, you know, the mass mm -hmm. majority, but they don't, you know, they're not saying, Oh, I'm the best. This is the best. They just right. are, are passionate about their topic and it comes across, you know? Sure. And so I think if that's your baseline, you'll be right. good. No, no, I'm going to say I'm the best. I'm yeah. the best. No, yes. Goes um, right in line with your book. <laughs> so one of the things you mentioned there, you know, maybe this is personal to me, but I know a lot of my friends my age deal with this as well. So you said, you know, you have a day job, which is you are the uh, Golf Digest digital editor, which Correct. we're going to talk about. You have a family, which I'm aware of because that's kind of the purpose for the book was your boys. Right. Um, so you have two two boys? Correct. Okay, two boys. Uh, when do you find time to write or do anything? Because I, I have a young son, and he's, he's 19 months old. Mm -hmm. We hope to have another. And I'm already finding it, it takes my drive to do a lot of other things away because I'm like, sure. I just want to hang out with him. Yeah, well, um, I certainly experienced that. Uh, as well, and still experience it to, to some extent. I mean, first of all, my, when my boys were young, I kind of put my own personal writing aside. You know, it was it just wasn't realistic. It's there. They are both from uh, my heart and soul was uh, in being a dad and being there for them and my mm -hmm. wife. And not that, not that I'm not now. But, yeah. You know, there there is a, a you know now they're eleven and eight, and you know they they certainly um i certainly want to be with them a lot but they also are becoming more and more independent so mm. some opportunities arise so how did i do it i you know i have a stack of dishes that you know i don't do <laughs> my lawn is a mess um you know all those things you know you make sacrifices in your life and you know i don't sacrifice sounds really dramatic i mean but i just found time. You know, I woke up early in the morning. I worked on weekends. I went to the library for a couple hours on weekends. I worked mm. at night. I worked on the train on the way to work. Um, you know, you just, my wife makes a good point about me. She's like, you do the things that you really like to do and you don't do the things you don't want to do. Hence, yeah. the, hence the, hence the dishes in the, in the, in the sink. Um, I just, I've, you know, when I'm passionate about something, I find a way to do it. And I think that's true for everyone. 
That's a great point. And you are a writer by trade. I mean, you that's what you've done your entire adult life. Is that mm-hmm. right? For the most part, I mean, I'm now technically an editor, but right. certainly part of being an editor is, I mean, I'm a writer by, first and foremost, a writer, but I'm yeah. also an editor and a manager and a bureaucrat. Yeah. <laughs> well. And so I guess, you know, because I'm thinking about it, and I know a lot of listeners want to write books, I want to write books, et cetera. Right. Uh, but when you are a writer by trade, I, I would imagine it's easier to kind of get into that mode. Like, okay, I'm on a train. I have 30 minutes. I can write. Well, because you practice so many times, but for people who are trying, it's like, oh, just that 30 minutes would take my brain to like get used to the blank page. I, I, I suppose. I mean, it's, you know, in, and the same thing could be said for me looking at a spreadsheet of numbers, you know, I am <laughs> going to be utterly clueless and people, um, that, you know, I have friends who work in finance who it's no big deal. So right. everyone has things there you know, inherently they, they are drawn to or find quote unquote easier. Um, I do make a point that like, you know, you can, you can find a way to become proficient in anything. If you really put in the time and energy, Mm. um, it's all about effort, but, but yes, I guess, um, I writing, I, I, I'm reluctant to say it comes easy to me because I don't think it's ever easy, but I do feel I enjoy it. And so I, I'm motivated to write in ways that maybe people aren't. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about what you do as your day job, because I find it fascinating. So, first of all, you covered sports in, in, in before uh, being an editor, right? Correct. How does one become a sports writer? Because that sounds like, aside from being the athlete, one of the coolest jobs on the planet. Right. Um, so my, you know, my background out of college was writing like I wanted to do creative writing I wanted to write novels and fiction and but I also <laughs> I had college loans and I wanted to I wanted to not live with my parents for a long time so <laughs> you know I had to get a real job you know being a novelist or a short story writer is a very noble job but it doesn't really pay uh, right off the bat and so um, the next best thing for me in becoming uh, to becoming a novelist was working in journalism and working and I love sports. So I was fortunate to sort of get a couple of freelance gigs at various newspapers and that turned into a full-time job. And I, I loved it. You know, I love writing about sports. I love, you know, covering, um, hockey and golf, which were my two main things. Then I got to a point in my career that, um, you know, you have an opportunity to go to golf digest is, as you can't really go to a better place. And for me, I also recognize that, you know, the way the world is these days, the job, the, the opportunities for just 100% writers on staff at places uh, are dwindling. You know, most places want people who can do a little bit of everything, and writing is one of those things. And I recognize that. And I wanted to work at Golf Digest, and an opportunity arose there. And I, I opportunity arose to work on the digital side, which I suppose I was smart enough to recognize was the future of publishing. And so... Um, I jumped at it and I was really glad that I, that I did. So as a digital editor, does everything that goes out on golfdigest.com have to go through you? <laughs> That's a great question. Let's, let's put it this way. Everything that goes out through golf digest on digital is my fault. If, it's, <laughs> if it doesn't work out. I, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but you know, we have a, we have a great, very big, uh, not barely or growing staff, um, that includes all of our sort of golfdigest.com content and then we have tons of social media and tons of video now and so uh as the digital editor that's all under my purview i don't want i don't want to attach self-importance there's a lot of people who who have you know important jobs that see this stuff through but that's all part of it as well and so 
Yes. Um, my job is planning the daily content of the site and what we're, what we're putting out on a daily basis and wh- how we want to cover things and the tone that we want to cover things. But um, there's, um, you know, the digital world is not governed by the same sort of checks and balances that the print side is. You know, when a print, when a print story, because I work on the print side as well, I just, when a print story um, is written, it's written. It's sent in, it's edited, it's fact-checked, it's designed, it's sent back out on galley for literally 15 people to read, it's um, it's laid out on a page. All these things go through. We move at such a quick pace at Golf Digest, and so um, we allow ourselves the opportunity to mess up. And we just, you know, the good news is, is that we have people who um, get it, you know, know that our what our standards are, and um, we move at a, at a quick, but I'd like to think at a very responsible pace as well. Right, yeah. And I mean, I mentioned this prior to us recording, but I'm a diehard golfer. And mm-hmm. by diehard, I mean, I left finance. You know, I had a, a cushy finance job. I took some time off, said, what do I really want to do? And it was golf. And so I took a $9 an hour job at a golf course working towards a club pro. Wow. Yeah. And then a year into that was like, this is <laughs> terrible. Um, I'll keep it as a hobby, but anyways, so, you know, it's got a special place in my heart. And what I'm wondering is how do you go about, like, what is the internal strategy for golf digest digital, you know.com to, you know, what's the goal? Is it connecting with the avid golfer? Is it providing Mm -hmm. entertainment? Is it mostly providing skills and and things like that? Or, you know, what do you consider your job to be means you're succeeding, I guess, is what I'm asking. That's a great question. So, um, and it's something we think about all the time. So Mm -hmm. um, the way we look at it is that there are basically two pools of people. There is the diehard golfer, the people, the converted, you know, the people who love golf, who are in golf, who know golf digest, who want to improve at their game. And then, so that's, those are people we definitely want to serve. And we want to and provide you know news about the game. We want to provide instruction on how to be better. We want uh, equipment reviews are a big part of it. You know reviews of golf courses, all those things that golfers know and value. And that's a that's a big part of Golf Digest. The second part though is people who golf is kind of on their radar and they may like golf. Um, and we want to we want to engage those people as well. We want to prove to them that golf is fun and. Um, has a lighthearted side, and so there's an element of entertaining those people. I mean, to use a you know kind of uh, internal metaphor, we call it a funnel. Like the the wide part of the funnel is all these people who are sort of uh, intrigued by golf and who um, are you know would be in, would be interested in a post about Tiger Woods or Ricky Fowler uh, partying with Cindy Crawford, which actually happened last week. Oh wow. Uh, those are people who, you know, we recognize that there's a certain pop culture element of golf that we want to tap into. So those people, but eventually we want people to, to engage those people so that they are interested in actual golf and real, you know, and playing the game and, and hopefully, you know, seeing why golf digest, you know, the kind of core coverage areas of golf digest have real value to them. And, um, so it's kind of like we try to, uh, get them in the door and then hopefully keep them there. Right, right. Well, what's the pressure like? I mean, here's the thing. As you mentioned, the landscape has changed. Writing has changed, especially on websites. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we got to get, we got to be the first. Uh, we have to get as many people as possible and all of that, I, you know. And so I know, at least to me, it sounds like a fairly glamorous job. Oh, I get to write about and see all this stuff with golf and one of the largest, 
most well-known mm-hmm. kind of digital golf providers. But I mean, how stressful is it that you're going every day? You have to be thinking, or, or I'm sure from on high, it's mm-hmm. how many people read this one article, sure. this one tweet, all that yeah. stuff. That's a really good question, Chris. I mean, the way, the best way to look at it is that 20 years ago, when you wrote something for Golf Digest, obviously there was pressure to write writing for Golf Digest because there were standards and we had an audience and we wanted to make sure that that audience, we were serving that audience. But just by the nature of it being in Golf Digest, people were going to read it. You know what I mean? If we just yeah. if we made the decision to put it in the magazine, people were going to read it because we had this very engaged audience and that was the most important sort of hurdle to get through. Well, now when you push out all this digital content, you're competing for so many eyeballs and there's just because it's written by golf. I just doesn't mean anything. You know, I mean, obviously it means a little bit. I don't mean to say that, but like, I mean, you have to work hard to earn people's attention. And so there is, I guess, stress or pressure to make sure that, you know, headlines are working as hard as they can. Stories are working as hard as they can. What is the story? Like you, we have this internal uh, debate all the time about, um, you know, oh, I want to write this story, and we have to say, well, what's the hook? You know, what's what's the angle here? And the guy says, well, I just kind of want to write about this. Like, that's not enough. You know, we have great writers, right. people who are great, and there are some people who people just are attracted to because they're they know the the byline. But those days are are fewer and farther in in between. Now it's more about what is the sort of uh, you know use use a business jingo. What is the value proposition of that that story? And now a quick word from one of this week's sponsors. I'm really excited to bring this week's sponsor into the fold. This week we have Blue Apron. Blue Apron is fantastic. Simply put, Blue Apron makes cooking fun and easy, and they provide you with all the ingredients you need to make a delicious meal in exactly the right proportions. Not only are they bringing you delicious food, but they have such a positive impact on the community. The seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Montero Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef is raised humanely, chickens are free range, and the pork is raised naturally. Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of food deserts. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste. It's had such a positive impact on my household. My girlfriend and I cook together, and Blue Apron helps facilitate cooking together, which builds strong family bonds. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. All right, let's get to the good stuff. Here are some of the meals available in January. Seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney, spaghetti squash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots, and spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. All right, so here's what you have to do. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash smart people. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash smart people. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now back to the episode. Well, and you know, as the digital editor, I mean, this is such a great conversation because I, I've thought about this so many times. I mean, you're, you know, given that you've written your whole life, you're probably a bit of a purist and you now know the things you have to do to get Mm -hmm. eyeballs on one of them being like these titles, right? The titles, Mm -hmm. I mean, 
they're ridiculous sometimes because I've done some writing and I've done a lot of mm-hmm. research on it. And you you could just instead of going, what do I want to tell people? It's like, how do I hook them oh, instantly completely. and all that? Do you ever feel like ugh, this is taking not only this is taking some of the fun out of it and some of the the real grit out of it, but also you're pandering at all? Um, yes. And so, look, that's a part of the deal. And I 100 percent get it. You feel like you're um, lowering your standards yeah. in some way. And the way the way I justify it in my mind is that um in order to do the things that are really of quality and that are really that we really value as journalists and as writers and as golf people um you do the things that are just to get audience and Mm -hmm. so and i always say that you we would not be doing our job if we wrote all these sort of uh provocative or salacious stories because that's just you know that those that's everywhere on the internet right people can read those type of stories everywhere so that would be a real a real um miss on our part however the other side of it is if we wrote these highly principled really deeply reported journalistic stories it took a long time to write and we didn't have um you know we weren't making sure that people were seeing them we would be we would be writing to a fraction of the audience that we have and so you justify it by making sure people are aware of the work you're doing by just getting them in the door. And then when you get them in the door, you can show them that there's some real depth to what we do, which is true. Right. And it, well, the reason it's it's a great conversation to have with someone like yourself, having read Golf Digest and a million different golf things for years, is like I could go back probably through Golf Digest. And I don't know if you can search this way, but I mean, you've probably titled an article you know, the number one cure for a slice, you've probably never, titled never that, about that literally ever. probably 3000 <laughs> times. Right. And, and I understand yeah. it because if a person happens to be there that day, everybody slices if you're a righty. Right. So mm-hmm. how do you feel about that? Is it just kind of like that idea of, well, people want to read that. So although we yeah. wrote about it three months ago, they might not have seen it three months ago. So the way, yeah, that's a big part of it. So a way we justify it in our minds, and it's totally true is that you know, as the editors who live with this stuff every day, we're aware of the repetition in some of these stories. Right. But the average reader is not. You know, to the average reader, that day they want to read about a, a slice cure. You know, they want to they want a story that's going to talk to speak to them, and they're not keeping track to the same extent that we are. Mm. Of course, you know, it doesn't say that we don't want to be original and that we don't force ourselves to come up with innovative approaches to stories, because of course we do. But you can't be uh, paralyzed by that thought because um, people aren't keeping track to the same extent that we are. Sure. No, that's totally fair. I think it's one of my downfalls is seeing the total pure logical side of everything where you have to look <laughs> at, I mean, you know, you have to look at kind of the, the real world sure. and realize even I operate like that. You right. know, I'll, I'll play a, a round of golf and mm-hmm. shoot, you know, five strokes above my handicap because I was hitting a duck hook and then I'll go on the golf now and just want the most recent thing on hooks. You know what I right. mean? Anyways, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. I also want to ask you about the future of kind of content creation, perhaps digitally. I mean, what do you see given it's the, the growth curve on the amount of information is so insane. It can be, depressing it can yeah. be for people who want to put things out there it can it can seem uh useless i mean yeah. what do you think yeah it's a great question and i wish i had all the answers i would say the 
the the most important thing right now is to make sure that as a publisher you are providing something different and that is you know that has real value to it you know that you have to um if you if your focus is on quality and you are um getting people there then um you know, you have to make sure that you continue to serve them. So, for instance, I look at the New York Times or the New Yorker, like two uh, brands that are, uh, I feel, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have, a priv- I'm not privy to their bottom lines, but I feel like I've really transitioned well to the digital age. And the thing they do is they have become nimbler. They're obviously a different operation than they were 20 years ago. Um, but they've also maintained that their, you know, their name, their brand has a certain level of quality that um, they stick to. So, you know, going back to what I said before, at Golf Digest, we, you know, we feel like the way to remain relevant is, first of all, getting, having people look, you know, find us. So, you know, having as wide an audience as possible, but also making sure that we are delivering on quality and things that people aren't going to find somewhere else. So that, you know, when there are a gajillion uh, stories about how to cure your slice. People look at golf digest. Like, okay, this is golf digest, though. It's coming with a certain level of quality and a certain expectation of credibility. Right. It's definitely fair. Well, let's transition over to the reason we're all here. Even though that was part of the reason I was here, to be honest. <laughs> um, brand new book: Win at Losing: How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. Uh, why don't you do us the you know honor of just kind of give us a brief explanation for those that don't know? Set the book up for us. Sure. Um, the book is essentially about how losing is an important part of our lives and a good thing in our lives and how uh, we can derive a lot of benefits from moments of failure and, and losing. And for me, it started with a really small uh, personal challenge of my two boys. We talked about my boys earlier. Um, both are very active in you know youth sports and competitive little athletes and both struggled with losing and, you know, couldn't see any upside in losing. So I, the book starts with this tennis match my son was playing and it was, um, he was 10 at the time and he lost, uh, in the semifinals of this tournament and had a complete meltdown and ran into the parking lot and threw his racket and swore off tennis forever. And it sort of crystallized a couple things. One is that he's a miniature version of me. And second of all, that he needs to learn how to lose, that he needs to see that losing can be a, a really good thing and that he needs to understand that first of all, you can't, you can't uh, throw up your hands in frustration when things don't go your way, but also you need to recognize that there's a lot of good that can come out of that experience. And so, like I said, it started as a small challenge, and I could have kept it there and written a small book about teaching my kids how to lose, but I ultimately wanted to expand the scope and write about losing on a broader scale and talk to people who have endured you know, profound losses in various walks of life. So sports was certainly a part of it. Uh, so there's, you know, Greg Norman losing the Masters. I talked to him, but there's also Michael Dukakis um, losing the presidency in 1988 and how he dealt with it and talking to people who started businesses that, you know, went up in flames and how that ended up being a positive experience. So I tried to look at it from a variety of different angles and and uh, support it all with not only the voices of the people who experienced it, but also, you know, experts, people who, you know, know this topic at a pretty deep level um, and who can kind of help us explain, help us understand why losing can be a good thing and why and how we can process it in a constructive way. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic explanation of it. But now I'm going to ask you a question that, you know, couldn't have 
prepared for it. It's not a stump question, but take your time because I, I, I really want you to, you know, this is helping the information you have gathered, right? Mm -hmm. So one of them is in terms of sports, I think it's fairly obvious in that um, having played sports for a while, if you lose, it stinks, but it, it highlights the things you could get better at and mm -hmm. all of that. So you just go back to the table, you work on that thing, hopefully you win. Okay. But, and you can give us the other reasons, but I just want to keep that sure. one on the table. But for something that is more a, a soft skill almost, or take, you know, Dukakis or, or sure. anything you saw on that, where the reason you lose is less um, hands on, like less sure. obvious. At the And then you go back and you say, I lost because of who I am. And so I equate it to one time kind of a, a devastating, uh, I didn't get hired for a job. Right. And, you know, I was like, that's about who I am. Right. I mean, and and no matter any rationalization I put behind it, assuming I was prepared and everything, which I was to my best of my ability, how does that even help? Or how do you not, what did you find people say, here's how you don't go into a spiral of self-loathing? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I would disagree with the premise that, you know, you fail because of who you are, you know, like people, you know, you were rejected and it, it's a reflection of your self-worth. Like there's a whole portion and Dukakis is a perfect example there's a whole portion of the book that talks about growth and fixed mindset so you're familiar with that phrase oh yeah yeah from yeah, carol so, dweck yeah of course so carol dweck was you know i talked to her for the book and i uh quote her quite a lot in the book and you know her whole um argument is that we should never look at failures as a definition of or of us or nor should we look at our successes as a definition of us if i'm if i win at something it doesn't mean i'm a better person or i'm better it just means i was better that day and that my you know but that i you know and over and if i lose it means i wasn't as good that day and i can always get better and so you know dukakis for an example Yes, he lost probably because people ultimately decided that George Bush was the better, better option for president. But there were things about Michael Dukakis that he could improve upon. Maybe, you know, he chose not to run again for president. And, you know, so it's not always linear. It's not like you can just apply those lessons the next day. But ultimately, there are things as a person that he can improve upon that may have been deficiencies. So when you look at Hillary Clinton, for example, mm -hmm. who just lost an election who um, in many ways was rejected by people because of, quote-unquote, who she was. Well, that was the reason why she lost the 2016 presidency, but it doesn't mean that Hillary Clinton can't address those shortcomings or flaws that people see to become a, you know, a public servant or a, or a valuable contributor to society in some way. And she can – all the things that were turnoffs about her are things that she can, she can address. So I would, I would argue that – um, it's never a reflection of you. It's a reflection of, of you that day or what you brought to the table that day. Do you see in all the people you've interviewed, um, do you see like their ability to work through that given they have a stronger mindset or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Because yeah. sometimes, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, right? Uh, we all fail and I'd imagine everyone or most people dwell on that a little bit and and it it takes a hit against who they are and so mm -hmm. i'm wondering in your conversations did people say yes like i'm human that happened and then i made this conscious decision or i took these steps 
Yeah, no. I mean, very few people, I think, wake up and say, okay, this happened to me. I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to grow from this experience. It's just not realistic. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a much longer process. So it's, mm-hmm. um, it's not the next hour or the next day. I think over a period of time, though, they are sort of faced with this new reality and they have to find a way to navigate it. Um, and so ultimately that shows their resilience and their ability to, you know, their, their ability to, to have the right mindset. But, um, as Dweckert herself says, people, everyone has a little bit of fixed mindset and a little bit of growth mindset in them. And so when we lose our first, um, instinct is to have that fixed mindset. Like I'm the worst. I suck. I, you know, all those sort of, uh, all that negative self-talk that's inevitable. Um, what eventually happens though, over time is you, um, are given a choice about how you really want to process it. And that's when you can start applying, um, you know, this sort of growth mindset of, okay, I, I guess I gotta, you know, I guess I gotta get up and, and, and do something else today or whatever that, you know, whatever that next step is. And that's where, um, people's resilience comes out. I don't think people are more innately resilient than other people. I just think people are forced to find that part of themselves, mm. uh, you know, sooner or quicker or uh, in more obvious ways than others. Yeah, I, I that's a great kind of quote there, especially because, you know, athletes, it's the easiest way to look at this idea of failure. But even I just saw this. Oh, man, who is the coach? Some NFL coach recently reached the top of the most losses in NFL history or he was like second. Right. But the way he got there is because he was so successful. He was employed long enough to play enough games where he was going to lose that many. Exactly. And that was just such a fascinating idea that in order to reach the list that on its own, you would think, wow, this person lost the most experienced the most failure. You also have to stay in the game long enough, be good enough, et cetera. Completely. I mean, I, I think it's important to note that um, a lot of the people that I quote in the book are quote unquote losers, but still are very impressive people. And I could have written books about people who never, you know, you know, instead of writing about Michael Takagas, I could have written about someone who, who never won his, uh, you know, the school board election that he went out for. I mean, you know, but, so, but you know, it could, and there's a valuable lesson from that person. In this case, I did choose someone who, who even in losing as badly as he did in 1988, won the Democratic nomination for president, was mm-hmm. a governor of Massachusetts three times. I mean, Greg Norman in the book lost the Masters, but he was still number one player in the world for 90 weeks. So, uh, I mean, it, there's this kind of common thread of you still have to frame the success, which is even in even amidst, um, you know, quote-unquote failures, like the NFL coach who lost that many games. Uh, you know, the NFL coach who lost a lot, a lot, all those games, you know, still is probably – uh, you know, can point to greater success than guys who never even had a job in the NFL or never had, a, you know, so it's all a matter of, of how you frame uh, success and failure. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. If you're running an e-commerce business, Whiplash is your virtual warehouse. You send your products to a Whiplash facility so that when orders come in, Whiplash packs and ships them just like you would, but faster and cheaper. Leave the logistical hassle of order fulfillment to Whiplash and save money on shipping costs while doing so. Check it out. Holiday sales shouldn't be stressful. Next time, get Whiplash. 
Whiplash has facilities in Detroit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and London. Listeners of Smart People Podcast take advantage because you can get a $100 credit when signing up at getwhiplash.com slash smart. That's getwhiplash.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. And one of those things of gratitude, it's something I've been working on a lot. It's, you know, I'm a coach and I know it's one of the things that everybody, oh, gratitude journal and think about what you're grateful for and all that. And it took a while because again, I'm skeptical and things sound kind of cheesy, but it's realizing that, you know, it is the human condition to want more. And if Mm -hmm. you never look at what you have or what you've gotten, then you will only see the failures and not the, the successes. Completely. The the gratitude thing, which has become kind of like a self-help buzzword yeah. in the last years, but it, there's such value in it. You know, like I literally woke up this morning feeling um, very grateful and, and, and trying to express my gratitude that I, you know, that I was able to write a book and that right. I, people were happy for me. I really felt that way. And it's just a healthier way to live. It's really, you know, you could talk about mindsets again. I could, you know, choose to focus on all the things I don't have and all the things I want. And I just, I think that's a that's a vicious cycle that you go down. And so people, the reason why people gravitate towards this whole gratitude um, movement for lack of a better word is because there's real value in thinking that way because um, you know, you, you're, you're able to highlight things that are, are good in your life. I wanted to, you mentioned it already, obviously we talked about it a bit, but the Greg Norman story, it was one I wanted to highlight and not because it was golf, although it was, and I'm familiar with it, but because yeah. it's pretty, enormous right so Mm -hmm. he never won a masters but will go down in history as one of the best golfers of all time right but not only that he went into sunday with i think it was a six shot lead or something which is i mean for the best golfer in the world that's basically a slam dunk it could be one of the greatest kind of sports failures what does he say i mean does he recover it's a total I mean, that, that would just speak to who you are as a golfer. So does he recover? How? What's he mm-hmm. say about it? Yeah. And what well, does he actually believe? Like, I don't want to hear the buzz line. I want to know what you think yeah. at its core it means. That's a great question. For, for, for starters, uh, you know, it, it, is a, it is a crushing loss. And, you know, he blew it. And um, in, in some ways, he never recovered in the sense that he never won another major. He never won the Masters again. You know, he, he made a run three years later, 99, and had a chance, but he didn't win. So, you know, you can make the case that he didn't have this great redemptive moment where he, he triumphed over his demons. Um, where I do feel like he, quote-unquote, won or succeeded was because he became more human to people. So Greg Norman's a proud guy. You know, the time I spent talking to him, um, he is a proud guy and, you know, maybe even a little arrogant, I, you know, and I think in his case, when he recognized that he lost and people responded in the way that he in the way that he did, which was genuine. I think he genuinely owned up to the mistakes he made that day and admitted the pain he felt and and, uh, you know, congratulated Nick Faldo, all really admirable things that was a very endearing moment to a lot of people. And so when he saw how people responded, he probably a part of him was like, wow, I really like this. You know, people really, Mm. people responded well to it. So appealing to that sort of that pride or um, for a second, he recognized that, you know, he lost in a very um, constructive way that shaped him as, you know, as a, you know, as a public figure moving forward. Um, So was it, 
was it calculated? I don't think, and I'd like to think it's not calculated. I think it was genuine, but I do think that he was uh, self-aware to re- enough to recognize that um, it was a good thing for him. What message did you ultimately take back to your boys, given that that was kind of the initial goal? Yeah. Um, if you could sum it up and, you know, it doesn't have to be one sentence, but a couple minutes or whatever. What would you learn? Yeah. I mean, the, the two big things is just this idea that if you realize that losing is inevitable and that, you know, dealing with it is um, just a part of life, then you can start saying, OK, if I'm going to lose often, you know, the best way to deal with it is to take some positives away from it real and recognize it can make me stronger and see that I'm going to be better because of adversity X, Y, and Z. And then from there, I think the most important thing is once you see that you're, you're going to lose and that losing does not need to be this devastating event, then you're less afraid to try things. And so, um, you're less, you know, you're less afraid of sticking yourself out there. So like, this is such a small, dumb example, but it springs to mind for some reason is um, my my youngest son is um, has this great attitude and like actually like we're at a wedding and he dances and he loves to dance. Mm. And, you know, he's not afraid of putting himself out there and being judged because he just, you know, he just he's has that kind of mindset. My oldest son um, is constantly like you know he de- deals more with trepidation like he doesn't want to be judged in that way or doesn't want to let loose in a way and i guess you know what i'm working on with him is there's nothing wrong with putting yourself out there and allowing yourself to be judged if you realize that either way you're going to be okay and so it's just making sure that um they embrace risk and are not afraid of falling on their face because invariably the fear of messing up is usually worse than the messing up act, you know, actually is. Yeah. Or the fear of what it holds you back from accomplishing. Exactly. And it's something, again, the reason I, I, I was really excited about this, I mean, logically this all makes sense, but it's so hard to do. It's, it's so hard to put into place. And again, even for sports, I don't think that's a high enough bar because you can lose and just go get better and you can maybe keep losing. But especially if you're a professional, you're getting paid to do it. Right. You know, it's more the things I think of, regardless of your political stance. I mean, Hillary Clinton has to had to be maybe, I don't know, you know, just despondent over sure. the loss. You know, what did you hear in terms of the pain that people felt? Did they admit it to you and, and kind of talk about, yeah, it's real. I dealt with it. Mm-hmm. And. What'd you hear there? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, that was a recurring theme. Is I didn't want um, to hear from people who was like, "Oh yeah, it wasn't a big deal. I was okay." Like that's not a first of all interesting story. Right. But second of all, um, I think there's a recurring theme there that the people who sort of gloss through the pain are not allowing themselves to, you know, gr- uh, learn from it or grow from it. Um, the 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 author Brene Brown has written about this, and she calls it, you know, um, gold plating grit in the sense that people are trying to kind of skip over the hard parts to get to the redemptive part. You know, I, I liken it to uh, if you went to the gym and you worked out for ten minutes and you walked on the treadmill and had a drink of water three times uh, and then congratulated yourself on the killer workout you wouldn't obviously you wouldn't get any results because you didn't go through the pain or the difficult part of 
of of working out. And so the real growth opportunities comes from experiencing that pain and feeling it and and hopefully learning from it. So I think everyone, you know, whether it was Greg Norman, um, you know, kind of walking like a zombie through the back nine at the Masters or Michael Dukakis, um, you know, still feeling like the loss in 88 stings him. Um, everyone had these sort of dark moments. And, I, you know, the, the point of the book is not to say, oh, um, if you read this book and you embrace losing, you're, you're going to avoid all your dark moments. It's not the point. The point is, is that it hopefully provides you a path to eventually emerge from those dark moments. Mm. One question I have for you, and, and again, it's because of the topic. So feel free to answer it, you know, with what you've learned or just what others have said or how you feel. This idea, you hear it all the time after failures. People say, oh, it's meant to be or what will come out of it will be better than, you know, what it was or who you were. Um, or kind of my favorite is people who look back and say, wow, you know, um, that actually worked out for the best. Mm -hmm. Right. And that feels good. But if I go back to, again, my logic, perhaps broken, sometimes I'll say, how do I know it worked out for the best? Because if that would have happened, perhaps it was so much better. And so I yeah. think about Dukakis, for example, you know, he might be wherever he is in the world and saying, wow, my life's great. You know, it, it worked out for the best. But did it? I mean, what if he was president and what if he changed the world? And what if, he, no, you know, yeah. what, what how do you what do you say to that? Well, even even he acknowledges that, like, he's not he's not happy he lost like and you know he's the guy who says if he, he has a line that says you know if i had beaten the old man you never would have heard of the kid meaning like if i had won <laughs> then you know you never would have dealt with george w bush and if you're on that side of the political spectrum you know it was a great loss on a on a number of levels um there's a part of the book in which i talk about counterfactual thinking and what you that's what you're talking about you're thinking about the kind of what could have been and that's pretty dangerous and my i guess so the point i would make is you should avoid it so the example that's great is um Olympic athletes who um, there's there's like been a scientific study of uh, that bronze medalists end up being happier than silver medalists. So stay with me for a second. I'll explain why. <laughs> the reason is is that bronze medalists they think about the fact that they almost didn't win a medal at all, and they're so pumped that they won a medal. A silver medalist thinks about the fact that he could have won gold, or she could have won gold. And didn't, and so they're constantly, they're constantly, um, you know, irritated by that reality. And so, my my point is, is that you, you know, you, you should be, you should not engage in those 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 negative thoughts because it ultimately doesn't get you anywhere. It you know, thinking about what could have been is um, can be really crippling. You know, you can, and if you do choose to think about what could have been, I think you're better having the positive slant. Um, because it, it might be a little bit of sort of mental gymnastics, but ultimately it's just a healthier way to live because, um, you know, it's the same way of thinking, okay, uh, you know, I don't have this house, but at least I have a house. You know what I mean? Right. Just, a, it's just, again, it goes back to that gratitude, like better to be thankful for the things that, that worked out in some way well, than th than focusing on all the things that went against you. Yeah, it does go back to that idea of mindset. And it's this, look, what happened, happened. You can choose to experience it now in whatever way you want. And if you want to beat yourself up, then go ahead and be a masochist. You know what I mean? Well, Sam, I know our time is dwindling. The book, again, Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains, came out today, covers these stories that we've talked about, plus many more. 
Um, is there anywhere else that you would like to direct people who have heard this? Obviously, pick up the book. We'll link to it on smartpeoplepodcast.com, but anywhere else? SamWeinman.com that has more information on the book and has some, you know, some coverage of the book and um, people's response to it. And there's a video of me talking very eloquently about losing. I'm being sarcastic, but uh, <laughs> so my website is SamWeinman.com and there's a lot of information about uh, the book there. Fantastic. Well, Sam, I, I really appreciated this. I want to give you your 15 minutes in between interviews because I know it's a crazy day. <laughs> Great. I enjoyed the discussion. It was fun. Thank you so much. Okay. Be well. All right. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Sam Weinman. Sam's book, Win at Losing, How Our Biggest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains, can be found at your local bookstore and as always on Amazon. And if you do purchase through Amazon, please do not forget to use our Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make while going through the link comes to no cost to you and gives us a nice little kickback and it helps support the show. Well, I hope you are having a fantastic start to 2017. It's always so weird when the year changes and, you know, you're writing things, checks, whatever it is, always putting that 2016 still. I wonder when I'll actually stop. Oh, well. That's besides the point, but if you want to reach out to the show, you can get in touch with us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're still thinking of 2017 New Year's resolutions, I have one for you. It's the resolution to leave more reviews. And if you want to get started, you can leave a review for Smart People Podcast over on iTunes. It's super helpful to the show, and we greatly appreciate each and every one of you for taking three to five minutes out of your day to do so. All right, that's it for me this episode. Please make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to see all things Smart People Podcast related and to sign up for our fantastic newsletter. It's easy to do so. We won't spam you, I promise. Make sure you stay tuned. We've got great guests coming up, and we will see you all next episode. If you're running an e-commerce business, Whiplash is your virtual warehouse. You send your products to a Whiplash facility so that when orders come in, Whiplash packs and ships them just like you would, but faster and cheaper. Leave the logistical hassle of order fulfillment to Whiplash and save money on shipping costs while doing so. Holiday sales shouldn't be stressful. Next time, get Whiplash. Whiplash has facilities in Detroit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and London. And listeners of Smart People Podcast get a $100 credit when signing up at getwhiplash.com slash smart. That's getwhiplash.com slash smart. 